0: If any company is at the top of most people's minds when it comes to AI, it's DeepMind. They've been at the forefront of many major breakthroughs, including AlphaGo, the first AI to beat a human Go world champion, and AlphaFold, which revolutionized protein structure prediction. Our guest on this week's episode, Shakir Mohamed, joined DeepMind in the early days and has been an instrumental part of their success ever since. Shakir is a senior staff scientist at DeepMind, an associate fellow at the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence, and an honorary professor of University College London. Shakir is also a founder and trustee of the Deep Learning in DABA, a grassroots organization aiming to build pan-African capacity and leadership in AI. Welcome to the show, Shakir. So great to have you here with us.
1: I'm really excited to be here. Hi, Peter. Hello, everyone who's listening. Um, I hope we're going yeah, to have some fun. So thank you so much for having me today.
0: Well, I mean, with you on, it's going to be easy to have a lot of fun check here. Uh, not worried about that. So now, I mean, of course, right now you are um, one of the leading researchers in AI at DeepMind, but it's not where your life started. You grew up in South Africa. Um, from there, Made it to Canada, then to London. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey?
1: I'm from a suburb in the south of Johannesburg. I spent most of my life uh, there, and uh, I love going back. All my is still there. The COVID pandemic has made it much more difficult, like so many people, for us to travel back to see our families wherever they are they are living. But um, I grew up um, in a very particular kind of period in the history of South Africa and, and then of course the history of the world. Apartheid had ended. Um, democracy comes to a country and you are this very young person growing up in the kind of country that's changing and transitioning and so you are yourself navigating all these different kinds of questions of your own identity and place in the kind of changing country as well as the very positive optimistic view in south africa i think even still today is still a place there's so much optimism and positivity about the role of democracy of changing futures of building new kinds of societies but uh yes yeah, so i eventually i did a an undergraduate degree in engineering um, at the university of the Vedvatos front and also a master's degree at the same university and then i was uh, lucky enough to get a commonwealth scholarship and then also be, to be accepted to do a phd at the university of cambridge so that was fun i really wanted to be able to level up or go to and see uh what it's like to do a different kind of research. I was doing neural network research and for condition monitoring in my master's degree. And then when I wanted to go to Cambridge, do much more theoretical kind of work, much more foundational work in uh, Bayesian statistics and reasoning through probability. And then the same thing at the end, I wanted to just see what it was like to live in North America. So I was lucky to have applied and got a what was then called a Cifa fellowship for Global Scholars programs. I spent two years in the amazing city of Vancouver, um, loved it there. And then at the end of that two years, I think so many people who are doing postdocs come to this point at the end of their fellowship as well. Wow the money is running out, what am I gonna do next? Am I going to apply for faculty positions or am I going to go to some big industry? And um, then there was uh, a small little startup. I think it was just doing its very first round of hiring of research scientists. This was at the end of 2012. And so then I wrote an email to our founder Shane to ask, well, I'm interested. I'm finishing my fellowship. I heard about DeepMind; seems like a really great place. And uh, then I suppose the rest is history. And now it's nine years later, uh, and you know I still get to do amazing research every day. Keep growing myself in many different areas of research, and um, I, you know I have the platform to speak to amazing people like you now. So,
0: Oh, what a journey, Shakir. Now I'm I'm really curious what originally got you interested in AI and machine learning.
1: Yeah, so um. I often try to reflect in this question. I won't say it's anything directed or strategic or um, had a clear sense. I initially did engineering because it was one of those fields where you had a sense that if you did a degree in engineering, there were many different opportunities available to you afterwards. So it was a good catch-all for that case. And then You know, like so many people, this is where there is the powerful role of really good mentors. So at that point in the end of my undergrad degree, there was a professor in our university, and he said, oh, you should uh, come and do a master's degree and the university was also funding people to go into. And so that's sort of where I began. Um, Chilidzi Marwala, that is his name. And he had, was just starting a lab and starting his kind of, um, research program in machine learning, in neural networks, in its application in industry and in biology and many other kind of areas. So I then did that master's degree. And, um, and yeah, I suppose from there, that's where it went. And then. At some point, uh, he said to me, oh, I think you should really apply to go and do a PhD in Cambridge. I think you are good enough to go and do that. I think it's very special to have someone tell you that. Of course, you never really believe them.
0: Now, Shakir, you mentioned late 2012, you applied to DeepMind. But I think for many people, DeepMind only came on their radar with AlphaGo, which was many years later, right? 2012 was still the very early days of DeepMind. In fact, I don't think they had published a single paper yet. I think the first paper came out in 2013, late 2013. So how did you know about DeepMind? And how did you, you know, wh- why did you think it was going to be, you know, such a big thing?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, it's such a great question to have to go through memory lane Um, I suppose one of the things at the end... In those days and like, I think that's still true today is the power of your own network and the people that you are on so there were two of us in this uh, CIFAR fellowship in Canada one in Toronto and I was in Vancouver and in that late summer we had met and we were both ending our fellowships and we were both thinking of well what to do next and this other person had known Shane and of course through that was himself having a kind of conversation on this so when we spoke he said oh I really think you should go and speak to them just see what this is about I was also at the same time wanting to come back to the UK another thing that so many people go through is that you end up in this two-body problem many people in academia or research end up chasing each other around the world for a period of four or five years and so that's what my, me and my partner we were doing we're chasing each other so it was also we were looking to go to London to find a place to actually well okay the little game is going we'll have done our postdocs and and do these kind of things so that was sort of the background and then afterwards uh, speaking to Shane you sort of had this sense that there was something new there was something exciting to actually try try. And for you as a young scientist and researcher, I also didn't have the sense that I would myself be someone successful in the academic setting of going to write lots of grants, of becoming a mentor for many kinds of students. What seemed to be also in that space a very... um, highly, highly competitive space, very few positions for many, many people. I didn't want to live in the US, which has in some sense the biggest kind of academic mark. So there was this kind of confluence of things all working together. But yeah, I had a great uh, chat with Shane. And actually in the beginning, it wasn't clear that um, I was going to be a good fit for DeepMind. And so I actually had left it at that thinking like, oh, this wasn't going to work out. And then several months later, we decided to have another conversation. There was actual funding. Europe was happening in the power of our conference are like neurops Europe's where we all got to actually meet and speak to each other. And then I was like, okay, this sounds great. This is the kind of journey and you are at the right kind of place to actually go on board. And well, you know, what's the worst that could happen, right? Um, you'll still do research. And, um, you know, London is also such an amazingly broad place that it can absorb you in many, many different career paths that you can take.
0: Well, I don't think the worst happened. I think uh, very good things happened. Now, I'm also curious, Back then, there must have been, you know, a very small number of people at DeepMind—maybe 20 people, something like that—and now it's it's over a thousand, maybe over 2,000 people. How's that arc been, and what has changed in terms of how you work at DeepMind back in the early days versus today?
1: Yeah, actually, I've loved this experience of seeing a changing organization and yourself also changing. And that kind of interplay that happens as people change and organizations change. And of course, they are changing each other. So it was really amazing in the old days, of course, to be a small startup, to be in a place where you would all just have lunch together around the same table, to go through acquisition, to become part of Google, and then just to see the amazingness of what Real corporate infrastructure looks like what production systems and running production kind of code looks like, and the different kind of way of professionalizing your way of managing people, running teams, growing research portfolios, and thinking um, about long-term research and. Yeah, it has just been an amazing journey to see that. Of course, you are yourself changing and the rate of pace at which you change is sometimes different from the organization. And yeah, it's, it's been amazing just to think of the way that we were changing. So in the beginning, you are doing many kinds of work to show yourself and the kinds of things you can do. And then you have much more focused and smaller teams. So you yourself can also only work on certain things, but in a startup environment, you get to work on many, many different things. It's one of the great things of being in a startup environment. And then as you grow and change, then you yourself want to focus a little bit more, consider the kind of influence that you have and how you're developing people. And then now I think it's really great that over time we've just been able to do so much more, um, grow in so many different areas. I myself have been able to do very theoretical work and write papers in mathematical statistics, or do very applied work in healthcare or environment, or do very the, um, sort of work that really questions the foundation of our own fields. And I think that's only possible because we were able to grow as an organization together and to create that kind of space to do the kind of research and, and thinking that needs to be done in the field.
0: Now talk about the expansion of the kind of things DeepMind is working on and that, that you are working on recently um nature published your work on now casting what is now casting can you explain it to us and you know what's the impact of being able to do it
1: yeah now casting is an amazing area of weather forecasting that i think everyone should know about because it's actually the one thing that all of us as individuals really care about so weather predictions you can break them up into different periods of which predictions you want to make. If you want to make predictions up to two hours that's something that's called now casting and if you want to do slightly longer then that's usually what we would just call forecasting or standard weather predictions and of course things that go on a century scale are climate predictions. So now casting is the problem of making very high resolution predictions. Predictions of rainfall every five minutes at one kilometer and this is obviously important to us as people because we always want to make decisions about how we're going to operate in the real world. Once we go outside, should I take an umbrella? How should I dress? What should I do? Um, But of course, it affects so many industries every day that we wouldn't think about. Airports rely on these kind of predictions because that's how they adjust the takeoff and landing schedules. Every outdoor sporting event that you can think of, The Olympics, for example, or the Wimbledon tennis relies on these things. Am I going to open the center court or not? And that is, of course, in a one hour to two hour time horizon prediction. So many, many different kinds of um, industries rely on from transport. If you can be futuristic, think about self-driving cars, for example. How am I going to route this vehicle with people in it right now? Well, you don't need a self-driving car. Even if you yourself were driving a car, that's useful information to have as well. Yeah, this now casting problem is really important and impactful from that point of view as well. But it's also really interesting to us as people who are doing research in machine learning and AI, because it asks so many fundamental questions. How do you make such high resolution predictions at the scale of an entire country? How can you account for the fact that the weather is so uncertain and variable? How can you calibrate in the way that climate scientists and atmospheric scientists require things to be calibrated? So I think it's really a great problem for us as machine learning people to work in, particularly for those of us who are also interested in another area of machine learning research, which is called generative models.
0: When I naively think of weather prediction, I would maybe not think machine learning because I might think, okay, weather... If I look at my engineering books from the past, it seems like I should solve partial differential equations of how the air is moving around and maybe, you know, how much is evaporating and might reach a certain temperature and and drop again. And how come machine learning is all of a sudden the way to get better results rather than solving PDEs?
1: Yeah, this is such a great question. The traditional way, and actually we have 200 years of amazing insight in exactly this, the way of doing weather forecasting the way you describe. We describe the equations which govern the way the atmosphere will evolve, and then we simulate them on very large computers for, you know, several days in advance. Now, one of the key challenges of running these simulations is that before they need a bit of kind of a warm up time until the simulation actually gives you reasonable kinds of predictions that will reflect the actual environment, the atmosphere that we are in. That time conveniently is around 90 minutes or two hours. So that's why now casting is important because now casting is the place that the current approaches, which are called numerical weather prediction systems, don't work so well. Now, coupled with that, over the last several years, many countries, especially in the developed world, have made investments into the sensing of particularly rain. So here in the UK and in the US, for example, you have radar networks covering the entire country. They do extremely high resolution measurements of the rain. So at Not even one kilometer, you can do each 200 meters, 100 meter resolution every two minutes to five minutes. So you have this extremely high resolution, good quality data source. And of course, when there is a need where existing methods don't work, and you have a source of very high quality data that's available, this is almost the perfect place for machine learning to enter and then provide its approach of extracting signal predictability and forecasting from that kind of data. And this is exactly the situation that we have in nowcasting.
0: That's so interesting. So when I imagine this, when you want to nowcast, let's say what's going to happen in the next two hours, do you access all those instantaneous radar measurements of the last hour or something to use them to predict what's going to happen next or Do not need that access? What's needed?
1: Yeah, so actually, I think you have exactly the system correct. You can actually get a live feed of all this data from your local, national, meteorological agency. And because you get this live feed, in the particular system that we were working with, it used the last 20 minutes of radar data, and then to make predictions of the next 90 minutes of radar data. So that's exactly what you need. And you can see that because we are operating at the scale of the UK, you need a certain amount of background of what was happening in the atmosphere. And around 20 minutes is the right amount to inform where rain is coming, what direction it's going to move in. And then you can actually take that forward to make predictions for the next 90 minutes. So yes, exactly that that system is is what you
0: have in mind. Very cool. Now, at its core, you mentioned that There is generative modeling, and it's not something we've talked about much in the podcast yet, so can we maybe zoom out and can you explain what are generative models, what's their role in machine learning, and what's their future potential?
1: Yeah, so generative models are an attempt by systems, machines, machine learning methods to create simulators of data. So for example, exactly in the case of radar data that we are talking about, if you have sets of radar data, can you use that data to create another system that can simulate that kind of data going forward in the future? So though that process of simulation or of generation is the key kind of object and you can see it's useful for these kind of prediction problems. And the other thing that's so useful about generative models is because you can generate, you can do many different generations of them. So of course, We observe one way of the atmosphere unfolding in the case of rain or the weather, but there are many other alternative plausible ways that the atmosphere could have unfolded. And generative models give us a way of exploring what those other alternative ways of generating data, in this particular case, weather can be. So generative models are connected to another idea in machine learning, which is called unsupervised learning. So if you contrast to supervised learning that says you have an input and an output, and you try and create this kind of predictor that takes you from inputs to output, the generative model says there's no outputs, there's only inputs. What can you do? Or unsupervised learning says, what can you do just by looking at this data, learning the kind of uh, patterns of structure, of reproducibility, of the way rain falls, the way it in, has intensity, what kind of structure, and can you learn that? And, you know, again, think of the way rain falls. What's so amazing that you can learn, almost trivially in this case, is where mountains are and the kind of orography, because rain falls in one way, even just averaging all the data images together gives you that. But you immediately learn this with a generative model, so you don't need to actually tell it where there are mountains, because it implicitly knows where there are mountains and how how rain will fall in those kind of categories. So you have this very powerful mechanism of generating data. So you don't just need to generate images. Today you can generate many, many different kinds of data all at the same time. You can generate audio and voice. So many other similar projects have done that. Things like WaveNet, for example, um, that many people have in their home assistants that voice is often generated through a generative model that using audio, or you can generate text. And of course, there's so much interest in language models and chatbots and the kind of role they have and concerns, of course, about them at the same time. Um, But those are generative models themselves of text. And you can imagine wherever you have sorts of data where you do need to be able to simulate or be able to generate other forms, there's this, tool of generative modeling that we have available to actually use and deploy in many cases. And I'll just say for many years, I've done research in generative models since I was a PhD student till today. And for many, many years, I've been searching what is the application of generative models that really lets you know this stuff is useful. It's not just me deriving another integral and an equation. And I was so glad to stumble across this problem of now casting because it makes it so clear why you need generative models. Because if you can generate rainfall predictions then of course you can create so many different services you can report how rain is uncertain you can make that available as a service to many other people who don't have specialized data you can make it much faster you can actually capture uncertainties that are really in the real world so it's many many uh, interesting things and of course the flip side for us as uh, ai researchers is that if our work is actually working on problems in the physical world and that, I think, tells us something very interesting about the fundamental algorithms we are using and using as a basis of developing AI itself. So,
0: I like your notion of referencing the physical world because, I mean, in my own work, as you know, a lot of it is in robotics. And it's nothing like going into the physical world to, to realize how challenging real world problems are uh, compared to things confined to you know, a digital world. Uh, simulated world is just a game or something which can already be hard but it's never as hard as the real world
1: it's never never as hard as the real world because the real world has Bizarre things. Um, birds is the really interesting thing. Birds come up on radar all the time. And so you have to account for the fact that actually there's no rain there. It's the season and birds are migrating. Or um, like all measurement systems, they have failures. So you have to know that there are different measurement systems. And in fact, one of the challenging things for radar data itself is that radar data is owned by national meteorological services so every radar is different across countries so you can't just maybe we could do some kind of what we call transfer learning where we use different completely different sources of data to try and learn about the same underlying phenomenon but it's never that straightforward when you're actually working with the real data you know part of the way the real world forces you and as we did in this case it could ask you to confront what is a really meaningful application of your work? In what way does it improve the current state of the art? In what way are the predictions you are making actually useful? In what way does it help actual decision makers? And you can't know that unless you go and speak to the people who are doing that. And we were very lucky to be able to go and speak to expert meteorologists and they will actually tell you, at least for experts, they don't care about very low rain the way you and I would care about because low rain doesn't cause any damage. The worst thing is that you get a little bit wet, but heavy rain, the real rain, that causes damage to property, to life, where emergency services need to be put in a position to respond, if you can create a system that gives them that 90 minutes decision of window, then you can actually do significant changes to safeguard property, life, and protection of our people and planet in some sense. So, um, so yeah, I, I really, I think real world data is just this uh, amazing thing. And as I said, it always comes back to your fundamental research. in in AI systems and what it means for us to explore intelligence and, you know, that interplay between AI and science and AI for science and AI
0: as a science itself. Talk about real applications. You've also worked in healthcare, right? Can you say a little bit about that?
1: There are two actual areas of real world that I am interested in, which are healthcare and environment. And I actually had this long-term dream of bringing healthcare and environment together. I think coronavirus pandemic made that a little bit more urgent. We all know about non-pharmaceutical interventions and the role of our public health and um, sort of air quality importance of these kind of things. So... um I've been taking the long systematic route, like, okay, let's do some work in healthcare, then do some work in environment, learn a little bit, and then see if you can uh, do something together. So healthcare is just an amazing space to work in also. If you wanted to find a more impactful area, you would probably really struggle. Maybe climate is the other one that could compete with it. So we um, were interested in that case, again, to go to the real decision maker and ask, well, what is the real key question here. And for them, for so many people who work in hospitals, physicians or clinicians, there is one disease that stood out, which is called the silent killer. Maybe one in four people will actually die of this disease in US hospitals and also here in hospitals here in Europe. And that is sort of related to kidney failure. And it's a particular disease which is called acute kidney injury. And so what we wanted to do was to see what are the ways that we could use machine learning to create early warning systems of organ damage particularly of kidneys to detect acute kidney injury and then you know, see what would, see what is possible in that kind of space. So we were lucky to be able to work with the Veterans Affairs Department of the United States. And one of the things that was so amazing about this Veterans Affairs Department is that they are really an expert and excellent in the care and treatment of AKI. So they're in some sense the best kind of partner you could find, particularly because uh, AKI does affect older patients and that really comes up in the veterans that they are serving themselves. So again, it's very much in some sense like the the now casting problem. Again, what is considered a meaningful problem? What is the right window of prediction to affect meaningful change? How would you know that you're making a good prediction in some sense? And we were lucky to be able to use electronic health records to then make predictions up to 48 hours in advance or even more in some of our tests as well of the decline of kidney function within three different categories. And based on that data, clinicians have a, an established workflow of how they would treat people. And actually the kidney is an amazing organ that if you know it's going through um, some kind of adverse effects, is actually easy enough to treat. You can provide more fluids or stop the medication and the kidney will come. But if you wait too long, then it's almost too late. And so there's this amazingly sweet spot that if you can give give the right window of action for clinicians, then you can do things. Of course, that work, we published it, but the real uh, test of time for that kind of work is to do several other kinds of clinical studies, which we didn't uh, get to doing at that point. So one of them is called a. A simulated prospective study where you go in the clinic and you just run it alongside the actual path to see what would have happened otherwise, and then you can do the real kind of clinical study. And those kind of studies take many, many years, a decade almost, to really complete and to uh, suss out and get done. But um, but yeah, I was very hopeful, excited. I really love that that space. I think it's an amazing area to work in.
0: Sounds like the studies still have to happen from what you're saying, but it, isn't that also part... I mean, it's good that there's such a thorough process, but isn't it also then frustrating that you know you have this prediction system that is good and that could already help people? I mean, are you allowed to to still have the system there and have the doctors be aware of the prediction it's, it's making and maybe help them think through things? Or you have to wait several years before that's possible?
1: There's no escape to waiting, I think, in this particular case. Um, for several reasons, actually. One of the good things of waiting is that you do more thorough testing and then you actually detect other kinds of biases that are in the data, that are in the kind of clinical practice that maybe for equity points of view, you may want to go back and actually readjust from the beginning. So unless you actually had some waiting, you never give yourself the opportunity to do that. And I think the real pathway for us doing responsible innovation with machine learning and AI is to create spaces within In our research pathway and program that add a little bit of friction that slow us down just for a brief moment and just for us to look again are we sure this thing and actually AKI is one of those cases where you will find that very very clearly um, that there is a racialized dimension to how AKI in the data and in traditionally is recorded. Quite a big distinction between black patients and white patients, for example, within the U.S. medical system. And that then gets infused into the prediction model that you'd want to correct um, and also may have uh, factors against age as well. But then also when you move it into the clinic, any system that you put into the clinic starts affecting the behavior. And you can never really say that they act without it there. So you have to be very careful about the control. So this is actually, I think, one of the big changes in the way we think about machine learning. We really think about them as these kind of socio-technical systems, that you cannot divorce the social element of what people are doing when they are encountered with it from the system itself. And so that itself requires sets of thought, of thinking, of um, ways of evolving the kind of test. And so I think ultimately, yes, in this space, although we are impatient to find ways of producing things, a little bit of friction is good. And I think with innovation, if we do it the right way, we can probably speed it up a bit. But uh, I think yeah, there is something to that kind of patience and friction that we add.
0: Now, Shakir, you mentioned that uh, the data might be differently recorded for black patients versus non-black patients in the US. Can you expand upon that? What, What is different?
1: So AKI is a system of thresholds. You basically accumulate two thresholds, one of them which is an average over the last year and one of them over the average over the last month. And actually so many cases of disparity in healthcare comes because the thresholds are chosen differently for different racialized populations. And this is the source in this kind of case. So now there may be valid biomedical and clinical reasons for different kinds of thresholds, but I think we can't assume that they are correct. we get that absorbed into our data, then everything about social disparity comes embedded in that data. This is how race enters into our data. And so I think that that's the point where we can say, oh, actually, let's think of something else. Or we can find, particularly if we want to do rigorous evaluation, we can find other kind of objective measures that we can compare alongside to say, well, okay, if we test it with a completely different way, we get the same kind of outcomes, decisions, correlations, um, you know, Explanatory factors, um, biosignals, etc. So, so that's a, in this particular case, but you see it in so many, many cases. The most recent one, I suppose, was around COVID in hospitals that affected Black patients again so significantly. Um, using pulse oximeters, which were these little devices you put over the finger, and again, they were not working as well for Black patients as they were doing for White patients. And again, this is how you see, and then that just affects the clinical outcome. Enough. Imagine we were doing COVID predictions or COVID safety triaging in a hospital, then we would just absorb what was fundamentally not the right kind of decision signals to you. So I think um, interrogating the sources of race in particular in our data is sort of one of those, again, big changes that has changed in our field and everyone is so attuned to them. So I think that's that's only um, a good thing for us.
0: Now, tied to that, you founded the Deep Learning in DABA an organization that is strengthening Africa's role in shaping the future of AI. Can you say a bit more about the Deep Learning Indaba, how it started and where is it headed?
1: An Indaba is a Zulu word, which means a gathering or a community. And uh, in South Africa, every meeting is called an Indaba. So <laughs> it is a very kind of common meeting, uh, common word to use and we really loved it. Uh, and um, in 2016, I think it was, we were probably there together. There was um, the Europe's conference in Barcelona that year. It was amazingly warm in December. Everyone loved being on the beach, looking at the beautiful uh, architecture of the church. Um, but one of the things stood out and I was not the only one noticing, but many of us were noticing, so where are the other South Africans in this conference? Like, what is so special about you that brought you here. And of course, none of us are so special. So something else is going on. And so I go to my one other colleague, well, what, where are the other South Africans? And then you just, after you ask that question, you naturally ask, well, where are the people from Botswana? Where are the Zimbabwe? Where are any other Africans at this conference, which is the leading technical conference in this kind of field? And then they were just absent. And so what is the mechanism you do? It. And of course, many other people were noticing the very same thing at the same time. Neat and Rediet at the same, well also noticed the same thing, where are black researchers in the field of machine learning? That same question uh, you know, had came already several years before um, with the pioneering work of women in machine learning. Where are the women uh, of this field? And so at that realization, what we thought was the thing we could do within the space of power that we had was we were going to just go back to South Africa To give a short series of lectures, myself and my co-founder Ulrich Paquet, we were just gonna do like three days. Let's just go back to Johannesburg. We give three lectures and work that we know how to do. Then we said, well, if we are going, why don't we invite a friend to add to the lecture? Or why don't we invite someone else? It's like, well, if we're going to do this. Let's have more people. And then eventually we were like, OK, let's do a little mini summer school of some sort, or a small mini conference. And so, yeah, that's how this idea snowballed from something that was going to be 50 people. And we then did the first deep learning in Daba in September in my alma mater, the University of the Vidvatis Rund. And it was just the most amazing thing to bring these 300 people together for the first time, to know that within the space that you are, that you don't need to ask this question, where are the African machine learning intellectuals, researchers, young voices, the leaders of the future? They are there. We just can't create the space to bring them together. So then over the last five years, we have been trying to grow the deep learning in Daba as an organization with a mission to strengthen machine learning in Africa. And that strengthening is something that... I as an African can use that to extend that power to other Africans that we can collectively own this organization. And so that means when we collectively own it, we collectively teach each other, we collectively skill each other, then we actually can take a very active role in shaping the way that machine learning will influence people across our continent. And like the examples of racialized um, factors that are entering into our predictive systems, that same kind of racialized system will enter into all of the technologies that will affect us as African citizens within our countries across the world. And so how is it that you can counter that? There needs to be many, many different kinds of strategies, but the one way that you can do it is by having technical experts themselves who know that material, who can create a new kind of technology that actually serves them, uh, in a different way. So. Yeah, and we did a second year in South Africa in Stellenbosch. We did a third year in Nairobi in Kenya. Then, of course, COVID came. But um, with if everything goes well, this year, we will host the next Deep Learning in Darba in August in Tunis. And then if everything goes well, we will go next year to Nigeria. And then we would have completed a full circle of South, West, North and East Africa. And, you know, over time, we just continue to grow the kind of things we think of doing. So now it's no longer a summer school that it used to be. It's actually a forum for research. It's also a mechanism of recognizing excellence in research through thesis awards, master's awards, bringing new kind of African startups together in conversation with young students and voices, and you know building that kind of international conversation of researchers from outside and researchers from local countries and regions themselves. So um, yeah, I'm incredibly proud of the work of the Deep Learning in Daba, and, and then to have worked with so many, many other amazing organizations across Africa, Data Science Africa, Data Science Nigeria, more um, communities that have evolved. As a consequence of that, the Masakane NLP community And then actually, you can see the power of a small idea in play that after we created the deep learning in Daba, many communities globally recognize that that is a model that can war. So today we have the Eastern European machine learning community. We have the Latin American um, community, which is called Kipu. We have Southeast Asia machine learning summer school. Last year was the first model of the India machine learning community. And you just see this kind of global spread of communities who are at the edge of machine learning, taking ownership for their own training, their own networks of togetherness, their own communities of practice, their own ways of building technology to serve their region and the kind of things that need to be supported for their languages and cultural factors. And and yeah, it's just been really amazing to see that kind of global transformation. So I have this line that I often use, which is I ask people uh, for several years, do you think global AI is actually something that's global? Or is it restricted in the hands of a few Western countries here in Britain, in the United States, in Canada, in France, in Germany? And, um, I would, ask, the answer to that was no five years ago. But today I do think global machine learning, global AI is truly global because of the amazing work of all these groups, not just the deep learning in Dava, but everywhere across the world to see that they actually have a, uh, an amazing power and, and, you know, as the side thing, this is the power of, the transformative power of grassroots organizing, which uh, is always a good thing.
0: This is absolutely amazing what you started there, Shakir. And I've of course seen, I've seen the websites of the events and just, uh, you know, everything that's happening and I'm just like, okay, even the endama itself to to great extent feel, feels global, even though it's centered around Africa, because it's it's touching on so many topics and bringing in so many researchers from all over the world to participate, right? It's not just African researchers. And when I look at the website, there is a mix of people coming in, working together on AI, exchanging ideas. And in fact, I mean, COVID interfered with this, but I clear one of the other leading conferences in machine learning was meant to be in Africa uh, right when COVID hit and would have been the first major machine learning event in Africa back in early 2020, right? And ho- hopefully that'll happen soon when conferences go back to actually being in person.
1: Yeah, I really, really hope so. So 2020 was the year I was the senior program chair for iCLEAR. And that was the year I was there, okay, it's gonna be amazing. We're gonna bring this conference to Ethiopia to go to the great city of uh, Addis Ababa. Um, of course, yeah, uh, COVID uh, came along. Though, so, um, I am a member of the board for, uh, iClear and we still have that intention of taking the conference, coming to a country in Africa, probably Rwanda, if we can succeed at doing that. But, you know, COVID continues to be with us. So, and un- un- lots of, uh, uncertainty still, but, um, yeah, it, it will happen.
0: <laughs> it's very interesting you bring up Rwanda as, as a likely destination because actually, One of our first guests on the podcast, Kenan Wairabek from Zipline, they started Zipline essentially in Rwanda, which is drones for drug blood deliveries to be able to deliver blood that otherwise would be very hard to get to patients. And for him, essentially Rwanda was the best place to start this company because just the environment to do the work. And it's interesting that now you're, you're going with the same country.
1: Yeah, I love. Uh, if anyone has the opportunity to go to Rwanda, is an amazing experience. The people are just amazing. Kigali is an amazing city, and you actually see how amazing it must have been for zipline to be able to. They really call it the the land of a thousand hills, so you had to really work hard to get those uh, um, drones to deliver deliver blood supplies in in all those ways. And now they've extended. At least the last I checked, to so many countries, and and yeah. So Rwanda continues to be um, an example of a model of different kind. Of innovation. And actually, this is the thing you don't need to see Africa as just this, um, you know, amorphous blob of things. Once you look inside, you find so much different innovation. And in some sense, our role of the Indaba is also just to reveal in some way the kind of interestingness of, well, here's an event in Nairobi, and how amazing is Nairobi to, to go to or to go to Tunis? And then to see the amazing, thriving culture of technology, of startups, of uh, government service and innovation.
0: Yeah. Talking about diversity, London honors February as the LGBT Plus History Remembrance Month. And I read a 2020 piece that you wrote for this um, event in London called Queer Exceptionalism. Can you say a little bit about what you wrote there?
1: Yeah. So... um every year. And it's actually one of the things that's maybe uh, interesting for, for all of us. Every year we me- uh, commemorate LGBT History Month in February and in the UK and in Netherlands and in in Ireland. And then in October, we celebrate Black History Month um, in the same three countries. And it's the reverse in US. So we always do the, the two of them together. I suppose one of the things I wanted to think about in in this way of thinking about what it means to be Queer exceptional. Exceptionalism. To do queer exceptionalism in science um, is to think about the role that queer people can play in the scientific environment, particularly because there is still a lack of visibility, or there are many different kinds of questions which come up. Even the most mundane thing turns into a very fundamental question of identity for queer researchers and queer scientists. And so I was using the word exceptional in that way, so that they live as exceptions to the way things are received or thought to be. And I think this is the idea that comes across in so much of queer life and queer living, where we think about this idea of queering things. Um, and the idea of queering something is to say, just for a brief moment, that maybe the thing you think is uh, the opposite of what it is. So, t- And I think you can bring this into the realm of machine learning. And actually I do purposefully think quite actively about what it means to do this kind of querying of machine learning, to take something that we take so standard in machine learning that we don't question its purpose, its value, its function, its applicability, its accuracy, and then to say, well, what if it is the opposite of that um, whatever we assume? So I think um, that's sort of the thing I was trying to think about. The other kind of thing that does come up in, in all of this is that we talk about diversity of equity, of inclusion, of the fundamental role of experience of life beyond the ones that we have. And if we're gonna take that idea seriously, then we need to think, well, what does it mean to bring those life experiences, those kind of ways of living into our research and make them actually a meaningful part of our research? So I think that's actually the very fundamental question that. Um, adds so much value to us as machine learning. And that's where you can see that the idea of queering and the experience and the lessons of queer life is something that is not only for queer people, but it's for everyone. And so I'll make this concrete. We were thinking through questions of fairness in machine learning. So like those examples of racial bias or gender bias that uh, we spoke about earlier on. And then we wanted to ask the question, well, what does queer life and queer experience tell us about or ask us to think about these questions of fairness? And one of the first questions that comes up is, well, the key idea of queer life is that we don't out each other. You don't ask someone, you know, what this what their status is, because that is an outing thing and that is somehow is is sacrosanct to special, is the kind of relationship that needs to be earned. And so in the area of fairness, there is an assumption that if you're going to assess fairness of an algorithm, you know in your data what the racial ethnicity of someone is, what their gender or sexual identity is. Now, and then of course, as machine learners, we also often find ourselves in the trap that if we Don't know something, let's just collect more data. The act of collecting more data is itself a kind of outing process. So what if you can't do that? What if you can't observe these kind of racial identities? And in fact, most things then will be unobserved and these kind of characteristics of fairness that we want to do are unobserved. So how do you do fairness through unobserved characteristics? And that I think is the key lesson of uh, queer life. And we, w- we then wrote a paper to expand on this topic using the lens of queer experience. I don't think we have an answer to that particular kind of question, but it raises questions so many Many areas of censorship, of privacy, of language technologies, of healthcare, of mental health, and then you can sort of unpack that in, in many different ways. So, um, so yeah, I just hope that we continue to show other people that they are examples of queer scientists who are working in the world who are proud to be out and open, and that actually being queer has a significant value that it adds, and that is a value that can be used actually by anyone. Um, so that, that's maybe the summary of uh, of that.
0: Well, I love that verb that you, that was new for me, queering, where you're effectively looking at assumptions that are being made. And for a moment, think, if I'm summarizing this correctly, you're thinking about what if this assumption everybody's making doesn't even think about twice. If it were not true, what, what would it mean? And what, what insights do we gain from thinking that way? I think it's super interesting. I, I think it can be applied to many things when, when you see somebody give a talk you can immediately often notice that there are certain assumptions they make and start asking that question. What if that assumption is incorrect? What would that mean for the field? What would that mean? And maybe, maybe one of those things that everybody's assuming is actually incorrect. And you can be, you know, onto a very new direction in in research that nobody else is pushing.
1: Completely agree. And actually, you know, for so many of us, when we go through our science, because we are so committed to the work that we do, it's very easy for us not to even enumerate the assumptions. So I think the act of querying is something that invites you to detect, to search, to ask what the assumptions are. Even when we ourselves as the scientists, as researchers, as engineers, we don't make those things uh, too explicit or they always are implicit and hidden. So I, um, yeah, you've understood that uh, clearly. And I'll take that as a gift to um, that. Uh, There's the new word for the day, querying. Maybe that will be everyone's word or it's maybe too long.
0: <laughs> yeah. Soon enough, once we release the episode. <laughs> so now Zooming out for a moment, there's a lot going on in AI at DeepMind and beyond DeepMind, of course, and you've been part of it for for many years inside DeepMind, before that at universities, through the conferences you organize, getting new people involved in machine learning that were maybe a bit outside of it before getting them involved. From all of that, as, as you now look ahead, what are some of the things that you think are some exciting discoveries or inventions that might happen in the you know, next five to 10 years in AI that would be really impactful? Ah,
1: I should have prepared for this one. Um, like all people will always uh, be biased by the kind of work that we do and the kind of interest and impact that we um, are trying to, to have. So. In one area, I will come back to the space of weather and climate. I think there's so much opportunity to work in this space and kind of interesting ways of reshaping and adding to this very established field of weather and climate. So climate models themselves have so many space for innovation. There are several uncertainties in climate models that have not been reduced even since the first assessment report of the IPCC, and this is maybe a very interesting place for us to integrate more and actually contribute to the kind of key decision making that we have. But of course, machine learning, I think, beyond that is going to continue to give us new ways of thinking about the physical world and using that for the kinds of adaptations we need to the changing climate. So. We spoke about now casting of rain, but you don't only need to do now casting of rain. You can do now casting for the amount of sunshine that's going to fall on your solar panel in this next one hour. And that could be very useful for the way that uh, balancing of energy on grids needs to happen. Or because we're so interested in the kind of quality of air that we're all breathing because of this COVID pandemic, you could do the now casting of air quality over the next year. And so I think over the next few years, we'll continue to develop those Kind of ideas. We will integrate new sources of data that are already available. And, you know, part of the big challenge is to see these data sources and bring them together in consistent ways, do the key work of engineering that we need to do and then take those things beyond our key papers. It's, you know, not enough. I'm of course guilty of this to write a paper in nature and leave it there. We need to do more. What is the next step of validating that? And I think over these next five years and beyond, we'll do much more of that validation. And then help reshape the way that um, weather climate science is thought of using the power of data, using the kind of algorithms of AI and machine learning. So that's one area that I think. um, The other area that sort of came up throughout our conversation was thinking of AI as a socio-technical system. We are trained almost as engineers, as computer science, to always think of the technical object, the algorithm itself and what It does, how it performs, how it should react in a system of safety. Now we have a new kind of conception that's changing where we say, well, let's actually start with the person first. How does the person react to that technology? What does it mean to keep a person safe in this world? What does it mean to help that person flourish and be protected? And this kind of thinking is so much bigger. It's going to require us, of course, to do new thinking in algorithmic auditing, new ideas in fairness and bias. And then we're gonna have to go all the way, think again about our publication norms as a scientific field, the way that we release code and what that means to take accountability and responsibility for releasing code. So that kind of socio-technical idea and the most important change of that socio-technical idea is to recognize that people must be important and part of the way we are going to develop that technology, that they have some, there's a role for them to participate in the way we design. And what participation means is going to become probably one of the most contested terms of the next five years. At least it's already highly contested and it'll only become more so, but the role of participation of people within the way that we are developing AI, especially if we have missions that use AI to advance science and benefit humanity, then that role is just going to become more and more important. And then I hope, um, you know, we will just continue to develop each other as people, think of each other as a field, continue to do the important work of equity and inclusion that we have been doing and um, help just bring more people in all the small ways that all of us can do as individuals to help, you know, bring one more person in, give them a new skill to help them uh, put into this world something, something new. And that's, I think, the best outcome.
0: Well, Thank you, Shakir. It's just a ton of fun having you on. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. I had so, so much fun. Um, and yeah, I love the podcast. Um, and yeah, I just can't wait to hear who's coming next. You know, not me, of course, <laughs> but whoever's coming next. It's just uh, just amazing to listen and, and just see all the breadth of um, different insights people have and just to hear you take it through. So yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a real honor and pleasure.
0: Well, uh, our honor. Thank you so much.